Amen, amen. We're going to have a seat and get your Bibles out. Turn to the book of Job as we continue through our sermon series through the book of Job. We're going to start in Job 11 this morning, and we're going to cover a lot of ground, a lot of real estate, and finish at the end of chapter 14. So we will move. Uh, at times, it will feel like we're moving pretty quickly uh, through the text, but that's uh, simply just a, a, a symptom of the volume of the text uh, that we're looking at this morning. So as you're turning to uh, Job chapter 11, let me start by asking you a question and I may be moving you to the place that that, that God's word is certainly going to be moving and directing us this morning. But I wonder uh, if you've ever felt that someone was intentionally cruel with you. Ever been there? They've been cruel. They've been harsh. Uh, Someone has been pursuing you, but really in all the wrong ways in how they've been pursuing you. And so as you think about that, I was, I was thinking about different times in my life where uh, that's been true of me. And I actually thought of when I was in high school. Uh, so I was in high school, I played basketball. And in between my sophomore and junior season, I actually changed jersey numbers. So early in my junior season, we were uh, playing a game. And even during warm-up, one of the refs was glaring at me. And I was just like, well, why is this guy glaring at me? And, and you know, I, my perception in high school was that refs were just generally grumpy people in general. Uh, so maybe he just was having a bad day and uh, maybe I was overthinking this. And then uh, the game started and, and I wasn't overthinking it because two minutes into the game, I picked up two really ticky-tack, just cheap fouls. Uh, the second one, I literally had no idea what the actual foul was. So I'm approaching the ref, trying to get clarity, going, what did I even do? And he said, do not argue with me. I'm going to kick you out. I was like, okay, well, uh, and, and even my coach is, my, my coach looks at me and goes, what did you do? I'm like, I, I have no idea. And so I, that, that was the rule for our team. You get two fouls, you sat the rest of the first half. So at halftime, uh, as we're coming out of the locker room in the hallway, uh, there's the ref standing there. So I kind of boldly for a high schooler went up to the ref and just said, excuse me, sir, I feel like there's an issue between you and I, uh, and I want to make sure we can maybe get this resolved. I, maybe I did something to you. And he goes, do you know, do you remember what you said to me last year? Now, there was a moment, if you knew me in high school, where it's like, oh, good grief. There's a lot of things I could have said to you uh, and, and, and feel like I was being outed. But then he continued, 44, do you remember what you said to me? And I said, oh, you mean the person wearing 44 last year said something to you? And he goes, yes, that was you. And I said, oh, no, that guy graduated. You're picking on the wrong guy. And you could see him begin to backpedal and kind of get a little bit sheepish. And he apologized and scooted away. Suffice to say, I got away with everything I wanted to in the second half. (laughs) But for the first half, he was picking on me and he was cruel and he was out to get me. And that is what we see with Job's friends, particularly Zophar here in chapter 11. And so as we continue through these speech cycles, we see this cruel, this this almost wicked pursuit in all the wrong ways of what Job uh, is, is, is Uh, trying, or or, or Job's friends in their wicked pursuit of Job, and what Job is trying to clarify uh, within them. And so here's where God's Word is going to lead us this morning, around this idea right here, loved ones, that when life is cruel, and it will be, but when life is cruel, we must maintain our hope in the gospel and in its redemptive work. And so when life, 
right? Whether it be people, whether it be the brokenness of this world, whatever it may be, when it's cruel, when it's difficult, we'll have to keep coming back over and over and over again to the hope of the gospel and to the finished work of Jesus. And so before we even get into the text, we would do well to stop and to pray and to have uh, the Lord come and have his way with us. So why don't you join me? Uh, Let's pray and God will have his way uh, with us if uh, he so pleases. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, I thank you just for your, your good word and your kind word that you give to us. And even thinking about this word this morning where so much of it will still feel pretty gloomy and, and, and gray. And yet there will be this moment of sunshine that will break towards the end. And God, I pray that, that regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, that you would come and speak to us. That you would come and minister to us. That you would come and have your way with us. God, whether we need to be encouraged, maybe we need to be exhorted, maybe we need to be challenged, maybe we need to remember something or be reminded of something. God, we pray that by the power of your spirit that you'd be free to move and to work in your people, to have your way within us. And so, God, we're submitting ourselves to you. We're saying, Holy Spirit, come and do the work that you want to do within us. And God, not only us, as always, we want to pray for another church in town. And I pray for Robert Browning and for the Church of the Redeemer. And thank you for those brothers and sisters in that body of believers. And we pray that you would be doing a good work in them as well. And so, God, now would you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to know and understand all that you have for us in and through your word. Jesus, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is When Counsel is Cruel. When counsel is cruel, last week we saw counsel that was empty. This week we see counsel that is cruel uh, and mean uh, and and a host of other things. uh, And Job's friends pursuing him really in all the wrong ways. Uh, Now, given the nature and the volume of the text that's in front of us, here's how I want you to think about our time. Uh, Have you ever been on one of those city bus tours? You ever been on one of those? Are you familiar with those, right? You get on a city bus and and they take you around to different landmarks and, and different things that you want to see, and, and, and that's a good way of getting to see some of the main things in a city. Uh, our time in God's Word this morning is going to look a little bit like that. We're going to meander through the text, uh, but we'll spend some time at some of the, the bigger highlights, and, and we'll just uh, quickly pass by others. Unlike a city bus, you don't get to pull a cord or push a button and get off. You're stuck, okay? Uh, if you want to hop off, the train's still moving, and good luck. you got to just jump off uh, while it's still moving. But Uh, That's how we're going to navigate our time uh, through the word this morning. And so we're starting in chapter 11, and now we're back with one of Job's friends, again, responding to what Job has said back in uh, chapters 9 and 10 and responding to Bildad. And we're going to hear from Bildad next week. He'll be equally disappointing, spoiler alert. Uh, But here we go. Let's start with Zophar. And I just wrote this down for, for what we see with Zophar in chapter 11, and it's Zophar's cruel counsel. Zophar gives really cruel Counsel. In fact, notice what he says starting in verse 2. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes. Which, by the way, Job did not say that. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Now check out this line. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Wow. And so, so far in his cruel counsel, in fact, three things we'll see in chapter 11. But the first is that he's suggesting to Job, you actually deserve worse. 
Job, you, 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 God, God's been kind to you. He, he could be far worse to you. And he starts by talking about these multitude of words and you babble and you mock. And then you get to verse 4 and Zophar here is, is wrongly accusing Job of saying something that he hasn't said. Job hasn't said that my doctrine is pure. Job hasn't said that he's clean. That would imply that Job has no sin. And Job's not saying that he has no sin. What Job is saying is that I have not sinned in, in the manner or the way that deserves this suffering. My suffering is not tied to some sin in my life. And Zophar completely misrepresenting him. And then you get to verse 5. I mean, can't you just hear how Zophar is saying this? This, this just indignant, vindictive, self-righteous tone. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. Oh, that God would give you what you deserve. That God would strike you the way that you deserve to be struck. Isn't it funny how we're totally fine if God wants to just lay the hammer down on someone else? But when it comes to us and our shortcomings and it comes to us and our failures, we want God to be merciful. We want God to be gracious. God, I, I don't see why you're, you're so excessively angry about this. And here Zophar, ironically, wants God to drop the hammer on Job. Pretty sure he wouldn't want God to drop the hammer on him for being an idiot, but that's exactly what's happening here. And how we, loved ones, how we should long not for God to drop the hammer on people, but for God to extend mercy and grace to people. In the same way that we would want him to extend mercy and grace to us in our own failures and shortcomings. See, that's a gospel perspective as something that, that, that is completely absent and void from what Zophar is saying or suggesting here. Oh, that we would long, not that God would speak and open his lips to bring punishment, but that God would speak and open his lips to bring mercy and grace. And then you get to verse 6. I mean, th- th- this last line, this is just unreal. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Hey, Job, I know your whole family has just died. I know that you've lost everything that you've ever owned in an afternoon. I know that you've had these incredibly painful and, and, and irritating sores for months on end. But bro, if I can just be honest, you actually deserve worse. Now, I know what most of you are thinking. You're like, how can I get some counseling with Zophar? I would really like to see that guy. He could really speak into my life. Right? No one's thinking that. It's like, I, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Now, at one level, right, in fairness to Zophar, at one level, it is true that in our sin, what you and I deserve is the fullness of God's wrath. That is true. But, but here's what you have to understand, loved ones, is that in the, for those who are followers of Jesus, suffering in the life of a believer, it's not some punitive thing that God does. It's not a punishment that God gives to us. In the life of a believer, the punishment for our sin has already been placed on Christ. And so if you find yourself in a place of suffering, that's not God saying, hey, this is what you get, and this is my wrath for your failure. That has already fallen on Christ. If you are suffering, it might be fatherly discipline. It might be akin to what Job is experiencing. But it is not God's wrath for your sin because Christ has already remedied that. And so you don't deserve worse because Christ took that, and we praise God for that truth. It's cruel counsel that you deserve worse. Secondly, look at what he goes on to say in verses 7 through 12. In short, he's saying, you don't know what God knows. 
which isn't false. But look at how he phrases this and how he sees himself in a really different position than Job. Verse 7, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's higher than heaven. What can you do deeper than Sheol? What can you know? See, the implication is, Job, you can't possibly know this, but I can. And he goes on, he talks about God's wisdom and the depth of God. Verse 9, its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? And so here, here you have Zophar, and he's saying, you don't know what, what, what God knows. But I do know what God knows, right? This, this, this kind of special knowledge that he has. And you look at this and, and really, I don't know about you, but I read this and I go, I just wish this guy would take his own advice. Like if you just take your own counsel, you'd realize the foolishness of what you're saying. You get down to verse 11, and here's the problem, because he thinks he has the special knowledge. Here's what he goes on to say. For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity. Will he not consider it? He's saying, God knows, God sees the worthless man. He sees the sinful man. And here's the implication of what Zophar is saying. He's saying, Job, you are that worthless man. I mean, again, this is, this is just not helpful. It's, it's cruel counsel. God has imprisoned you. He's brought you to sentencing. And part of the cruelty of Zophar's counsel is, is, is not only him confidently saying to Job, you can't possibly know what God is doing. It's equally cruel for him to be so strident in him, suggesting that he unequivocally does know what God is doing. I mean, how frustrating, loved ones, how frustrating is it to be around people who will apply God's truths and God's principles and God's ways to you very differently than they'll apply them to themselves? You ever been around someone like that? Hey, you need to do these things because the Bible says it. (laughs) Not me. I, I can do whatever I want, right? It's this double standard that exists. And, and, and part of Zophar, Zophar is acting like he's the exception to the rule. That God's going to wink at him, that God and him are buddy-buddy, and he gets to play by a different standard, and it's simply not true. But in another vein, part of what I think this is helpful for us is to be reminded that the Spirit of God is not solely at work in you. You're not God's precious, beloved individual that has the extra measure of the Spirit, and the rest of us are peons that just wish we could have a fraction of what you have. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit at work inside of you. In the same way that I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit at work within me. right? And so, so far, had there been a sense of humility and a sense of understanding in this, He would have actually had his eyes open to the fact, maybe there's some things going on here that I can't see. He's unwilling to listen to Job, and so he misses it. God help us, God help us that we would be humble in addressing one another, knowing that God is doing far more than we can see or observe, not only in ourselves, but in others. You don't know what God knows. Yes, that's true so far, but it's true for you as well, in the same way that it's true for us. And then you see this third cruel uh, piece of of counsel, starting in verse 13. In fact, I'd suggest this might be the cruelest and most severe thing that that Zophar does. Look at verse 13. And following, what he does is he gives an offer of a false hope. So he says, if you prepare your heart, which is really him saying, if you'd repent, 
You'll stretch out your hands toward him, which is, which is a way of suggesting that, hey, if you will pray, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tent. So here's what Zophar is saying. If you'll repent and pray a prayer and just own the fact that you're sinful, here's what God will do for you. Sounds like a cheesy infomercial, right? Verse 15, surely then you'll lift up your white or your face without blemish. You'll be secure and will not fear. You'll forget your misery. You'll remember it as waters that have passed away, right? Literally all your past, just water under the bridge, bro. Verse 17, your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning and you will feel secure because there is hope. You'll look around and take your rest in security. You'll lie down. None will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. Like, hey man, if you'll just pray, if you'll just repent, God will make your life easy. God will give you everything that you want. If you'll just own your sin, everything will go your way. Now, this is a clinic that Zophar is putting on for terrible counsel. But this is 101 for all the ways to do it wrong is what's happening here. There's a number of issues. Let me highlight a, a couple of them for us here. First of all, part of what we see in Zophar is he fails to make the distinction that in repentance, right? When I turn from sin and towards God that we're spared from God's wrath. That means that it cancels the debt out that I owed when I sinned against God. But to distinguish between repentance and being freed from God's wrath, that does not mean that it removes or takes away or eases the brokenness in this world uh, from from your life and my life. There's a distinction. In short, what, what, what he fails to understand is that you can be saved and you can suffer wildly. And if you're like, where do you see that? Uh, the whole New Testament, like cover to cover, it lays it out uh, unflinchingly. In fact, did you know only one of the 12 apostles ever made it to retirement? Right? The, the other 11 never got to do the island living thing because they were all martyred for their faith. But John, John had a pretty sweet gig because he got to do a little bit of the island living. Now, some of you are chuckling. Why are you laughing? Right? Because that wasn't a vacation and that wasn't retirement. That was, as tradition tells us, they tried to boil him alive. He didn't die. And so they exiled him to an island. This is the reality of every believer in the New Testament, that they suffer wildly. And Zophar's garbage counsel telling Job, hey, if you'll just pray this prayer and repent, everything's going to be okay. Now, see, some of you, some of you have been sold some false gospel at some point in your life. You have been told if you will pray this prayer or if you'll do this thing, then God's going to give you everything that you want. He's going to make you happy. He's going to make you healthy. He's going to make you wealthy. All your problems are going to go away. But you don't have to march very far down that path or very far down that road before you start to get frustrated and disillusioned. Why? Because you prayed that prayer and silver bullet Jesus hasn't come and solved all your problems. Right? You're still broke or you're still sick or you're still childless or you're still single or, 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 or you're still depressed or, or, or you're still longing for whatever it is. And you're like, what's going on? Well, you were sold a false gospel. That's what's going on. And Zophar fails to, to, to understand that repentance that spares us from the wrath of God does not free us from living under the curse and the brokenness of sin, which Job is actually going to articulate for us when we get to chapter 14. Secondly, Zophar is just, he is cold and calloused in a way that is incredibly grievous. 
And so if nothing else, let this be a lesson for you and I in how we interact with those who are suffering and struggling in life. I mean, he's saying, hey, listen, your past can be water under the bridge. It's not my past. Those are my children. It's not something you casually forget. I mean, it's so cold and cruel how he comes at him. And we have to be able to live in this messy, hard reality in loss and in struggle and in difficulty in this world. Meaningful ministry, listen to me, church, meaningful ministry happens in the most grimy of situations and the most grimy of places. We got to lean into that, not run away from it. Thirdly, we've seen this before, but I want to point it out again that this is just another uh, version of the Old Testament approach to a prosperity gospel. Job's friends are starting to feel like a bad rerun on TBN. Prosperity gospel after prosperity gospel. That's what it's starting to feel like as we read through this. And Zophar promising things. He has no ability to promise. He has no right to promise. Everything's going to get better. You have no ability to promise that to anybody. Loved ones, you can promise that God will be present, that God will be faithful, that God will be just, that God will be fair, that God will be kind, that God will be present. You cannot promise someone that their life is going to get easy. Don't lie to people and use Jesus to do it. There's nothing crueler than selling someone a false gospel, which is exactly what Zophar is doing here. So thankfully, on our tour, we're going to move away from this terrible landmark and we're going to move on to something uh, that, that, that resembles uh, something a little bit more uh, helpful and exciting for us. And so uh, here we go. Look at chapter 12. And here Job now is going to begin to respond. Now, uh, over the course of chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see Job's response. This is his longest response in the book anywhere. And so in chapter 12, 1 through 13, 19, he is speaking to his friends. Starting in 13, 20, he's speaking to God. And, and, and we'll get to how we see that when, when we get there in a few moments. Uh, but, but what we see here is Job starts by rebuking his cruel friends. And, and in his rebuke, Job wants to do a couple things. He wants to reveal the bankruptcy of their cruel religious system that is, that is offering no hope. But then he also is going to speak to the mystery of God that how God is at work and what God is doing, even though he can't fully wrap his arms around him. And the friends want to keep living in their comfortable, predictable, manageable, controllable system. Right? They want to be able to control God. Loved ones, it's shocking for how many of us that, that's, that we're guilty of that same thing. I just want to control God. And so as we walk through this, we're going to be challenged in a couple of ways. One challenge in the manner and way in which we counsel and speak into those uh, who have suffering and, and trial and difficulty in their life. Uh, but also this might even expose in some of us some of the ways that we want to hold tightly to our system and not to our Savior. So here's what Job says, right? He starts uh, with this rebuke. He's talking about the mysterious work of God and, and specifically the mystery that we see in suffering. Look at 12 verse 2 and following. Job says this, no doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. Now that's a very sarcastic remark that he's making. He's going, man, I'm so glad y'all are here because if we didn't have you, there'd be no wisdom left in the world. Now, I don't think this is a proof text to say that sarcasm is a spiritual gift. I wish it were. Um, 
I, I like to claim sometimes that's my spiritual gift. I don't think it is. But uh, God is not afraid of employing and utilizing sarcasm uh, in the scriptures. We see it here. Very sarcastic and necessary, I might add. Verse 3, but I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? And now here, let's pull our tour bus to a stop for a moment in front of verse 4. Because we want to spend a few moments examining this landmark right here. Here's what Job says. I'm a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. So Job speaking about this mystery of suffering. And he's speaking specifically to his own suffering, and that even though he's just, even though he's blameless, he has not sinned in the manner or way that has brought about this suffering. In fact, it's because of his righteousness that he's suffering. And yet he's become a laughingstock. He's suffering deeply in a way that he does not deserve. And church, I would ask you, can you think of someone else that will suffer deeply even though they don't deserve to suffer at all, that will become a laughingstock, they'll become mocked, they'll become ridiculed, even though they deserve none of it. And hopefully you begin to see how Job is in this moment foreshadowing for us the person of Jesus, that Jesus is, is, a, is a truly blameless one, not just in a particular instance, but in every sense of the word that he really is pure, as Zophar said back in chapter 11. And that he will become the ultimate laughingstock. In fact, if you want to, let me show you a couple places in Mark's gospel. If you want to flip over, you can just listen. But in Mark 10, as Jesus speaking of himself as the son of man being delivered, he says this in 1034. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But it doesn't stop there. He continues on. Chapter 15, we see some of the ways that this is manifested and plays out. 15, 17. They clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. As if that wasn't bad enough with the soldiers, even those who passed by got in on the action. Mark fifteen twenty nine. those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. I mean, can't you hear? That moron said he could rebuild the temple. He can't even save himself. If they only knew. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, Saved others, cannot save himself. <laughs> There's an irony in that statement. He's literally saving them right now. And he will save himself. And then it, even those who were crucified get in on it. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I'm a laughingstock to my friends. A just and blameless man, I'm a laughingstock. It's really a stunning foreshadowing of what Christ will ultimately do for you and I. And yet in his humiliation, he will bring the, the, the greatest of glory to God and the fullness of salvation to mankind. 
right? This beautiful foreshadowing of a savior who becomes a laughing stock for his people so that you and I can be reconciled to God. Praise God for that. So Job speaks to the mystery of suffering. Then he, 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 it's kind of a, a stark contrast here, starting in verse 7, because inasmuch as there's this mysterious element in verses 1 through 6, it's very obvious and clear in verses 7 through 12. Right? He talks about the obvious hand of the Lord. He's like, well, I don't know why I'm suffering. I do know who is allowing this. Verse 7 and 8, he's talking about, hey, listen, the whole creative order will teach you. They, they, they will share with you. They'll declare to you. Look at verse 9. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? And his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He's like, listen, God is doing this. I don't know why God is doing this, but make no mistake. God is doing this. Now, loved ones, as we consider these two items that, that feel like they're maybe contrasting with one another, right? The mystery of suffering and then the obvious hand of the Lord at work in this. Really important for us to take a moment and, and realize that, that there's two very distinct pathways that we start to run down uh, when, when, when we get into this space and into this water. And so, so, so pay attention here for a moment because this, this is a dangerous place if we're not careful with this. Uh, because one route, right, one route is um, when I experience loss or pain or suffering or, or grief or tragedy or whatever it might be, uh, and then I look at God and because I know God is allowing it, that God is, is not pre- preventing this, I become angry. And I become bitter and I'm cynical. And maybe I'm even saying, God, you could have stopped this. As if God owes me a certain level of ease or pain-free living. But very quickly, you and I can get to a very dark place if we don't navigate this accordingly. The other route, a very different route, both in its terrain and its destination is... We look at loss, we look at suffering, we look at pain. And I know that God is up to something. I can't put my finger on what it is, but I know God's up to something. And so I, instead of saying, God, why are you doing this? We go, God, for what end or what purpose are you after here? Might there be a different explanation to what you're after in this? And so instead of becoming angry and embittered and cynical and and, and bent out of shape, I begin to pursue what it is that, that God is moving toward and leading me toward. And here's the payoff in a really odd way, maybe a unique way. This gives us great confidence. Because I know that God is doing this. He's, he, he's working within this. And so even if I can't see where he's leading or moving, even if I don't like where he's leading or moving, I can hold on to the fact that I can't wrap my arms around it, but I know God is doing this. And so I'll hold tightly to it. Job in this incredible tension, right? He has no idea why this is happening, but he knows who's doing this. And really in short... We could bottom line it like this. You can run from God or you can run to God. And notice where he moves. Right? The obvious hand of the Lord. And then you get into starting in verse 13 through the end of chapter 12. I just wrote this down that we see the paradoxical power of God. This is a really interesting handful of verses, right? A paradox is something that seems to be contradictory but is actually not. And so verse 13, it says, with God are wisdom and might. And, and, and then we see a similar thing in verse 16, with him are strength and sound wisdom. Uh, that, that, that idea of wisdom and might is that God knows what to do and also has the ability to do it. 
How many times have you known the right thing to do, but you can't carry it out? Or you don't know what to do, uh, but I know I can do this. And God, God doesn't struggle with that. God knows the right thing to do, and he has the ability to do it. But then it almost feels paradoxical when we get into this. We're like, wait, but he has wisdom and might. Verse 14, if he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. And it's like, wait, so it's talking about drought and, and flood and, and, and God destroying and hemming people in. And then it just continues throughout the rest of the chapter. Verse 17, he leads counselors away stripped. Judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away strips, a stripped and overthrows the mighty. It's just this all the way through the rest of the chapter, the sense of like, what, what is going on here? So we see God's power, and yet it's held in tension with what seems to be a destructive element of what God is doing. And it's mysterious. We're not sure what's happening. We see God's powerful hand at work in this, but we're confused as to what it is that he's after. I think part of what Job is helping us to see is just because there's difficulty, it doesn't mean that God is not in control. He's very much in control. It's just accomplishing something that we can't see or wrap our minds around, which is what makes it a paradox. And then you get to chapter 13. And here Job more pointedly goes at his friends. And I wrote this down. Part of the mystery of God's allowance of deceptive counsel. So, so God actually, or Job actually speaks to uh, his frustration of his friend's empty and deceptive and destructive counsel. So verse 1, Behold, my eyes have seen all this. My ears heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. Verse 3, But I would speak to the Almighty and desire to argue my case with God. He's like, I know what you know. I'm sick and tired of fighting with you guys. I'm going to go argue with God. Why, Job? Well, look at verse 4. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. It's like you can't tell the truth. You are unhelpful. Verse 5, oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Job's saying, listen, if y'all would just shut your mouth, that'd be the wisest thing you've said up to this point. And loved ones, there is a time and a place where saying nothing is the wise thing. Verse, look at verse 7. We speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him. Right? This deceptive counsel. You ever wondered why God allows false teaching to exist? You ever wrestle with that? Like, why, why would God even allow that? Like, why wouldn't he just have people drop dead the moment they misrepresented God? You're like, well, we'd all be dead. All right. But, uh, you know, there's that. But... Think about, think about the ongoing, intentional, deliberate deception that exists and the confusion that it brings and the lostness that it brings and the hostility that it brings towards God and the gospel. I mean, it can be a really difficult item to wrestle with. And Job's wrestling with that. And maybe you've wrestled with that. Maybe you've got a loved one or a family member or a friend or someone that, that has been so just deceived and they're confused. You're like, God, why would you allow this? Job's wrestling with that same thing. And while he doesn't have a definitive answer on why, he does have a definitive answer as to how this ends. Look at verse 10. He, God, will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? 
Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. (laughs) Saying, listen, there might be a season where God tolerates or permits false and destructive and deceptive counsel. But at the end of the day, God is going to hold them accountable. God will hold these friends accountable. God will hold false teachers accountable. Loved ones, if you and I are misrepresenting God, he will hold us accountable as well. And there's loads of mystery that Job is bringing uh, to, to, to bear here. And, and no reductionistic, simplest, simplistic, religious system answers any of this. And so Job says, I'm done with your empty counsel. I'm going to appeal to God. And so notice in verse 13, really a pivot where he's telling his friends, I'm done listening to you. I'm going to take my case to God now. Let me have silence and I'll speak and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Job's essentially saying, I know, I know that I could go in and make my case before God and he could obliterate me in a moment. But that's far better than listening to you guys and your empty counsel. So then notice here, let's stop the tour bus for a moment and look at verse 15 and 16 here. This requires a little longer look. And Job says, though he slay me, I'll hope in him. Yet I'll argue my ways to his face. See, he's appealing to God. He's saying, guys, don't you get it? Even if God destroys me, it's the only hope I got. Your empty dead counsel has proven worthless and futile. I've got one hope and one hope only, and his name is God. And I might even be destroyed in coming before him, but that's the only thing I've got. Similar to Peter, John 6, you remember that? Jesus is laying down these hard teachings. The people are saying this is a hard teaching. Who can hear it? Then John says, after that, many of them no longer walked with him. And all these uh, peripheral disciples of Jesus are walking away, walking away, walking away. And Jesus turns to the 12 and says, you want to go away as well? Peter, where are we going to go? Seriously, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. We have nothing else. Loved ones, the same is true today. There's not some other God. There's not some new God. There's not some new hope. This is it. Right? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. God, help us. Right? God, help us that, that you and I would be men and women who will appeal to God. That, that, that this notion of pleading with God would be a, a beaten and worn path in our life that gets traveled often by us. Because we are constantly taking our case, our issue, our complaint, our struggle, our lament to the Lord, whether it be in prayer or through the reading of the scriptures or petition or whatever it is. That we'd appeal to him. And then in verse 16, Job says this, This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Now, part of what Job is getting at here is the notion that uh, the, 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 the unrighteous are going to be judged. 
And I think part of what Job is even getting at is if God doesn't slay me, it, it, it kind of proves my case in a sense. It, it, it vindicates some of what I'm after. But I think as we look at this back through the lens of the cross and back through the perspective that we have, this is really helpful for us in a, in a couple of ways. One is that the wicked will be dealt with. Right? God will deal with the wicked. But loved ones, you, have to, you and I have to understand that in our sin, we're part of that. We're part of that. Until Christ intervenes on our behalf. And if you're a follower of Jesus, and, and you can say, no, Christ has intervened on my behalf, because I can look to a point in time where I've turned from my sin and, and embraced by faith Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection in my place, so I'm no longer under the wrath of God. And you can, as the author of Hebrews says, not only can you come into the presence of God, but you can do so with confidence. And you can do that not because you are good, but because Christ has been good for you. And Job is giving us a similar sense here. This will be my salvation. The godless shall not come before him. They'll be judged. But those in Christ, they will come before him and and they'll do so with confidence. And then at this point, Job shifts, starting in verse 20. It's like, I'm done talking to you guys for a little while. I'm going to go talk to God. Job petitions God. And as he does so, we won't spend too long on this, but as he does so, I want you to see the progression of how Job moves through this. Uh, And particularly what we're going to see is a progression around uh, the issue uh, and then the effects of the curse of sin. And so while, I mean, let's be honest, the vast majority of the book of Job just feels like a really dreary, rainy day. But every so often you come to moments where just for a moment, the clouds break and the sun comes out. And it's going to get really dark and really dreary. And then in a moment, just for a moment, the clouds are going to break and the sun is going to shine. And we're going to go, oh, there it is. And then it's going to get cloudy again for a while, okay? Uh, But the sun will eventually uh, come out. But this progression that will get increasingly darker, dealing with the issue of sin. And in a moment where the sun will come out. But Job starts in verses 20 20 through 22. He has a desire to speak to God. Only grant me two things, and I'll not hide my, myself from your face. And you might say, Mike, how do you know he's speaking to God here? It's the middle of the chapter. What in the world is going on? Well, when you're dealing, especially with Hebrew poetry, pay close attention to pronouns. Pay very close attention to pronouns. Where, where it has been third person with respect to God, now it is second person. Right, look what he says in verse 21 and 22. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer, or let me speak and you reply to me. That's not something he's saying to his friends, right? He's speaking to God. And then, of course, as we see, even as we continue on, it becomes unmistakably clear that that this can only be God. And so he desires to speak, but he understands that God is awesome and powerful, and Job has no right to come before the Lord, uh, but, but has to petition the Lord. And much like in the story of Esther, right, where Queen Esther comes in before the king, And if the king didn't want to hear from her, that's it, she's done. But instead, extending the scepter, giving her the the right and the privilege to speak. And that's a similar sense of what Job has here. But as he does this, notice what he says in verse 23 and following. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. See, part of what Job sees here is the issue of his sin. Job is confronted with the issue of his sin. 
That's what happens when you and I get into God's presence. It's God's kindness and goodness to us that he confronts us with our sin. And so you can't get into God's presence and not be confronted with your sin. And that's part of what happens here for Job. And part of what God is doing for him is helping him to see the ultimate issue for you, Job, is not the injustice. It's not your suffering. The ultimate issue for you is sin. And it's the same for us. It's the same for us as individuals. It's the same for us in the world. And all that ills our world, our issue, ultimately, loved ones, is sin. Which means that religious systems and governments and and social justice and things of that nature, they can't heal the world. They're not bad. They're not wrong. They just have no power to bring about healing and redemption. Only Jesus can remedy this issue. Now, I, 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 I want us to love our community. I want you to love Rio Rancho or Corrales or Albuquerque or Bernalillo or wherever you live. I want us to be good citizens. I want us to invest heavily in our community and love our community. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law who live in the Middle Eastern town, and we were just talking about this area. I'm like, I love this area. If I could live anywhere in the world, I'd choose to live here. I love this place. But loving a community and being a good citizen and being civically minded won't solve the ultimate issue. Jesus Christ and him alone is the only way that this gets resolved, which is why gospel witness and gospel presence from all of us is an imperative. If you and I want to go be good citizens, by all means, go go be a good citizen. Just understand we haven't solved anybody's issues because the issue is sin not having nicer streets or sidewalks or less construction, although I'm all for all of that too, okay? But that's not the issue. And then notice how it it, it progresses from there. And I'm just going to be quick. I'm not going to touch a lot of things here for the sake of time. Be be a noble Berean and get at it. But notice in verses uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 14, we start to see some of the effects of sin, namely, uh, first of all, the curse of sin. He says this in verse 1, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. Wow, that sounds like an exciting life, right? But that, that's the curse of sin. That's the brokenness of this world. That, that sense of futility that, that we wrestle with. There's a comprehensive brokenness that pervades every aspect of this world and every aspect of our life. And it's almost like Job is saying what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the sting of death is sin, except Job doesn't have the perspective that Paul has to go, but praise be to God, right? And the victory and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So there's the curse of sin. Then we see the despair that comes from sin. Look at verses 7 through 12. This is such a striking illustration that he uses. It says, for, there's hope, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its roots grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil... Yet at the scent of water will bud and put out branches like a young plant. He goes, for, for, for a tree, right? for a tree, there's hope. And, and a tree can die and, and even years later sprout again. In fact, this is happening in my front yard right now. Some tree we cut down two years ago and out comes the sprout this spring. It's like, well, see if it'll grow. But look at what he goes on to say. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last and where is he? See, sin that isn't dealt with is sin that leads to death. A tree can come back from the roots. 
A, a tree can, can essentially have a rebirth. He's saying, no, no, for, for man, it's, it, that's it. it, it it's finished. It's, it's done. There, there, there's no coming out of the grave. And there's this despair. Church, you and I would do well to feel the weight of this despair from time to time. To let the burden of it capture the depths of anguish and gloom that exist apart from Jesus. And I would encourage you to, 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 to lean into that space from time to time because what I want you to be able to do is I want that to foster inside of us, not just lip service, not just a casual affinity for gospel hope, but that this profound longing to be face to face with Jesus and right with Jesus and that the brokenness of this world once and for all is alleviated for all of time. But we got to be willing to live in some of that Darkness and anguish and gloom. And then here for just a moment, the rain stops, the clouds break, and a ray of sunshine comes in. And Job has this longing and hope in the resurrection. Look at what he says in verse 13 and following. Well, that you'd hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. And then this next line, this is an excellent line. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. In the same way that you take the trash out of your living room and throw it into the dumpster and it disappears. I know it doesn't actually disappear, but none of us hang out at the dump, okay? Uh, right? It's gone in a more profound way that God bags up all of the trash in your life and in my life and the sin within us. And he gets rid of it. This longing for the resurrection. Right, the, 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 this ray of sunshine that, that shows up, right? there's a renewal that's come. And it's, it's the same for us today. We live in a broken world, loved ones. The resurrection gives us glimpses. It gives us peaks. It's this ray of sunshine that, that breaks through into the eternal hope that awaits us. And it allows us to hold on to Jesus until we're face to face with him. And we long for that day, except that day is not today. So we're pulling back into the station. Tour's done. What do we do with the things that we've seen? Now, maybe you just take a couple pictures and you scrapbook and you call it good. I don't think that's uh, what God has in mind uh, for these chapters. So here, let me give us four ways. Four ways that we respond to what we've seen here in Job 11 through 14. First of all, that we start with this. A couple of these are tied to Zophar. Uh, first of all, that we trust that the Spirit is at work in others. Take a cue from Zophar. Know that God is actively speaking into other people's lives in the same way that he's speaking into your life. It means you've got to be humble. You've got to be willing to listen. You've got to solicit counsel and input from others. And if you're looking out going, you know, I just don't know that the Holy Spirit's working in them the same way that he's working in me. Then you pray that the Holy Spirit would work in them in the same way that he's working in you. Right? We, we want to see the priesthood of every believer unfold in this church, not just the priesthood of me. Further, just so we're clear, 
There are three members of the Trinity. You are not like some uh, honorary fourth member of the Trinity. Okay? Doesn't work like that. They're full. They're fine. They're good. They don't need your help and they don't need my help. But we want to trust that the Spirit is at work in others. Secondly, again tied to Job's friends, I would just encourage us that we would endeavor to love God and not a system. I think the more that I read through the book of Job, the more grieved I am at his friends, not only because their counsel's lame, and it is, uh, but because they love their system. I go so far as to say I think they love their system more than they love God himself. I, I just, I haven't found anywhere in this book where the friends are talking about or expressing a deep love and a deep affection for God. I just don't see that. They, they, they love their system. They, they, they love themselves. And I think that's really it. They love themselves. And, and God's system is really just a spiritual veneer in helping them to love themselves. And church, if we're not careful, we can get really enamored with our doctrine and our theology. We can get really uh, caught up in our positions or our ministry or our service. Or if we're just going to call it what it is, our systems. And we end up loving them instead of loving Christ. We end up replacing Christ with them. And what a lame substitute that is. God help us that we would be captivated by Jesus. That we would be enamored with Christ. That we would love God above all things. Number three. Let us live intentionally in the messiness of life. And we've talked about this for weeks. We're going to keep talking about this. This is one of the things we see. Job's friends just aren't comfortable with, with the messiness. And, and church, we have got to be okay with people in situations that aren't okay. And there's a messiness to gospel living. It doesn't get all resolved. It doesn't get fixed. It's not clean, night and, not nice, and tidy all the time. Right? That, that, that there's, that there's intentional in our messiness. Okay, what does that mean? I never have to clean up again? No, that's gross. Clean your, clean your bedroom or do your dishes or whatever it is. But here's, here's four maybe simple ways that help us to live intentionally in the messiness of life. First of all, don't always look for the answer or the solution. Quit trying to fix it. God fixes it. And, and give time and space for the process of sanctification to have its effect in your life and in other people's lives. Right? If it's okay to not be okay, and, and we're going to be people who aren't fully okay, and we're going to have situations that aren't fully okay, we've we, we got to be done with, it's got to get fixed right away. It, a lot of times it's not going to get fixed right away. A lot of times it's going to take time. And you can't be frustrated, you can't quit if it's not instantly fixed. I wonder where you would be, I wonder where I would be if God demanded instant perfection from us. I'm not sure why we think we can do that for others. Secondly, another way we live intentionally in the messiness of life, I would encourage you to uh, work hard or to be focused, more concerned with being present than you are with being right. Focus on being present more so than you are on being right. Now, I'm not advocating that you try to be wrong, but we live in a society that, 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 that goes to great lengths to make sure that we're right. Zophar would, would have told us why his speech was right and why he said everything that was true. Of course, he couldn't have been further from the truth. But we don't place nearly the, the same emphasis on being present. And that's to our detriment. Part of living in the messiness of life is willing to be present with others in the messiness of life. Number three, 
We live intentionally in the messiness of life when we actively look to see how the gospel is redeeming the messiness of our life. So about 10 years ago, my parents got divorced and it was awful. It was one of the most miserable seasons of my life. It was so painful and so grievous. People said and did some of the just most painful and stupid things. It was just utter foolishness, some of the things that that people did in that season. And yet one of the things very early on in the process that I could see that God was using in a redemptive manner in my life was, was changing the way that I looked at and I perceived people who had been divorced, people who were getting divorced, people who had their parents divorced and things of that nature. It gave me a far greater sympathy. It gave me a far greater empathy, a far greater understanding and, and a willingness to not just, oh, I can fix this to, man, this is messy and I don't know that you can fix this. And so as you look at the messiness, look for ways in which the gospel is redeeming the messiness of that situation. Finally, living intentionally in the messiness of life, let our messiness drive us to prayer. I can't can't think of a better response. I mean, honestly, I could have just said that and we could have moved on. All right, that would have been the best response. So we saved the best for last. Uh, But let messiness drive me to prayer. And if broken, messy living is what drives us to prayer, then so be it. Finally, this, how do we respond to this? I just wrote this down. Let us find hope in the resurrection. Right? That, that, that beam of sunlight, that, that, that moment where, where it breaks through. So as you think about your life in trial or despair or desperation or grief or loss or mourning or whatever it is, let the reminder of the resurrection offer you hope to hold on to. It is a life raft for this season. Loved ones, today is not how the story ends. This isn't the end, right? The end looks radically different with Jesus being victorious in every sense of the word and the consummation of his kingdom. And we look forward to that day. That day is just not today. And so in the the midst of the brokenness of this world and the despair, let us hold to this unshakable hope of the resurrection that is to come. When life is cruel, We must maintain our hope in the gospel and in its redemptive work. God, would you let it be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father.